Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. Really interesting episode today with my guest, Howard Tierski, as we'll be talking about the key to driving sales for a business. At the simplest level, it's about asking, how can I serve my customers better? If you can focus on this and answer this question, you'll generate more sales and continue to grow. Today's episode focuses on how businesses need to adapt and innovate in order to answer that question and continue to grow. And sometimes the answers aren't very obvious at all. But before I spoil it all in the intro, let's get Howard on. Hi, Howard. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind just quickly introducing yourself? Tell us a bit of your, your background and how you got to, to what you're doing today. I spent 25 years working with large brands on digital transformation. We didn't call it digital transformation for that full period of 25 years, but What's really occurred during that time is that the potential of digital and the connected economy has really transformed, well, transformed businesses, but maybe even more importantly, transformed customers and customer expectations. So I've been working with companies from General Motors to General Electric to NBC Universal to Avis to Airbus to many Fortune 1000 brands. I've had the really great opportunity and, and good fortune to have a chance to have a seat at the table as they have been thinking over these last several decades about how to respond to these both opportunities and threats posed by the world of digital. Having done that for so long, both in the books and other kind of material I put out there by way of thought leadership, and also my work with clients at my agency and consulting firm, which is called From the Digital Transformation Agency. Okay, great. Sounds good. Yeah, some big businesses there. What do you think is like the most important thing for a business to be considering these days if, if they want to be growing? Well, the number one driver of growth is always sales. And the number one way of getting more sales is to drive the customer behaviors that equate to sales. And usually the way you do that is by offering customers more value. When you offer them something better or cheaper or more convenient, that's usually going to equate to a better response in the marketplace. So at the simplest level, I think what every company needs to be doing is asking the question, how can I serve my customers even better? How can I provide them even more value? Because when you provide them more value, they're going to be willing to give you more value. And that translates to growth. Yeah, of course. And you mentioned cheaper there, um, which I think is a really interesting route to go down. In certain industries with certain products, that makes sense where maybe the product is very similar to what someone else is offering. But otherwise, would you suggest going down that, that kind of value route and that convenience and making something better so that you can actually sell it for a higher price. You create that, I guess, that customer behavior of like them seeing it as a more valuable, more quality product if, it, if it's a bit more expensive. And the cheaper you go, the more it's maybe a bit of an impulse purchase or less considered. We once, a few years ago, we studied a whole bunch of the most successful companies in the digital world. Hmm. And what we mean really is the companies that have been most successful over the last couple decades in terms yep. of growth in revenue, in terms of growth in market capitalization. And we looked for patterns. What were the companies doing that were most successful? And we found three. One was hyper-convenience, making their offering more convenient for the customer. The second was proactive personalization, tailoring their offer to specific individuals. And the third is a massive value shift, leveraging digital to provide massively more for less. If you look at, for example, what Spotify provides for 10 bucks a month, any song you've ever wanted to listen to compared to the old model of going to the uh, record store, or if you look at somebody like, even just look at Amazon, you know, the free shipping, the lower, low, lower, more competitive prices. If you look at something like Skype or teleconferencing solutions like Zoom, the cost 
to use those types of solutions is just an order of magnitude or several order of magnitudes lower than pre-existing solutions that require dedicated hardware, et cetera. So I think the one of the biggest opportunities, and every company needs to consider their own business model. And sure, it's always great to add more value in such a way that you can charge more. I have absolutely no quibble with that. But it's interesting when we look at many of the most successful companies, they're giving product either away for, if they're in the media world for free, like a Google or a Facebook or somebody like that, or they're figuring out how to create a a new version of a product for a digital world that leverages digital capabilities and technology or digital ecosystems or the gig economy or other components such that because they can scale it so much larger for so much less cost, they can charge at a whole other different order of magnitude. And when you can do that, that potentially gives you an opportunity to scale in a whole different way and obviously be incredibly competitive, even if you haven't managed to match your competitor for feature by feature. So I think that's a trend we've seen. Obviously, you have to look at your strategy in any given industry, but I think figuring out, can I deliver my product not a little bit less than my competitor? Is there a way for me to, it's not even the same product. Is there a way for me to solve the same need as my competitor for one-tenth the price, for one one-hundredth the price, not just 10% less? And when you can do that can be a sea change difference. Yeah, I think it just kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you've seen that, I think it's a GIF or it might be an interactive thing about web design, I think, which is fast, was it fast, cheap and quality? And you can have two of those. And it feels like to begin with, it's a similar thing in that you can give something cheaper and you can make it say more convenient, but it's not, might not be quite as good in in some aspects. But I imagine a lot of these companies eventually will get to that point where actually the offering is itself is so much better quality and it's more convenient and they can supply it cheaper because they've built that scale. Yeah. I, of course, I've heard that phrase for, for years and years. I remember even being like in high school and hearing that good, fast, cheap, pick two kind of thing. And I guess what I'd say is that's what I'd call kind of new- Newtonian physics. And there's nothing wrong with Newtonian physics. It's accurate for a lot of things. We've, we used it for centuries to figure stuff out. And yet there's, when digital comes along, all of a sudden we have maybe Einsteinian physics. Is it possible to be way cheaper and way better? Yeah. Is it possible to provide a more personalized experience with far less human contact? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the most personalized experiences that we have today come from companies with an incredibly small number of employees in terms of their ratio to customers. So some of the principles that we might have previously defined as being completely valid before the digital revolution, so to speak, they don't always hold true. And I think they can be a little bit dangerous limitations on one's thinking. I think it's much better to say, let's conceive a stretch scenario. What could we do to make our product 10 times better and yet only cost one-tenth as much as what it costs now? Now, of course, some people are going to say, that sounds insane. How could we possibly do something like that? But if someone says, okay, fine, it's insane. But if you were to do it, how would you do it? And then usually someone's going to say, we'd have to do it totally differently. We would never be able to manufacture our product the way we do today. We would never be able to distribute our product the way we do today. Go on. What would you do? Could you be the largest hotel, the largest hospitality company in the world and yet own no real estate? That sounds insane, but that is what's happening today. So I think that we have to be careful to re-examine, not to get stuck in assumptions or rules like Newtonian physics that are perfectly sound, logical, and and in many situations valid when we look at the new world where we're operating under some different rules. Yeah, I think uh, so. It's really interesting what you're saying. I think a lot of the examples you're you're talking about, in a lot of cases, these are new companies which have come in with that business model, 
and really gone down that route hard as opposed to being in the old business model and saying, how do we change what we're offering because it needs to change? Yeah. So how do you, how would you go about studying your cust- like customers or the market to understand what, where the change is happening so that you can actually adapt your existing business to, for example, like a hotel business, massive hotel business, and you're suddenly thinking we need to cut the costs of owning hotels. How would you go about researching that, understanding what the customers want uh, yeah, sure, sure. Well, I want to answer your question, but I, I also want to accept your um, critique <laughs> of my examples. And I want to offer you a few that that aren't, because I, I think one of the problems that big companies, one of the this false psychology that some big companies can get into is they think, oh, sure, Netflix, Amazon, Facebook, Google, I don't want to hear about those guys anymore. Those are all big tech companies. How am I going to do that at my legacy brand? Amazon is the number one retailer here in the United States. You know who the number two retailer is online? Sorry, Amazon's the number one online retailer. Number two online retailer is Walmart. Apple Pay is the number one digital wallet in the United States. You know who the number two digital wallet is? Starbucks. So in fact- Companies that are pre-digital, not built from the ground up for a digital world, absolutely can do and are transforming themselves to be absolute winners in this digital economy. Most are not yet, Mm -hmm. but there are enough examples to show that it is absolutely possible. And the challenge is, so how? right? How do yeah. I get from here to there? There's an old joke that I don't know if you have it where you are, but it's an old joke in the US from a couple of comedy troupe from years ago, where someone pulls into a gas station and he says, how do I get to Boston from here? And he's in some rural area. And the person in the gas station says, you could take the interstate. And, no, that's closed. You could go around, but no, you can't. Come to think of it, you can't get there from here. And of course, we all know that's impossible. <laughs> There's always a yeah. way. But, but it can feel that way. It can feel like, how would our company ever get to where we would need to be, where we could have the courage and the boldness to create a whole new way of interacting with our customer that's really built for this digital world that we're in? But the bottom line is, you have to be able to do that to survive. That's My book is called Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. And I'm a real positive guy. I hate to be, there's risk of irrelevance, but we've seen so many companies, the, the battlefield is increasingly littered with the bodies of companies that failed to transform or transform fast enough. And so <laughs> the reason I wrote my book in part was to take all those learnings from 25 years of working with big companies in which I've seen many successes and I've seen and frankly been part of plenty of failures too. And learning from all of that, I think there are some definite best practices and definite things that I know work when trying to make that transformation. So the first thing you asked about, I think is the right first question, which it all starts to me with customer insight. And so how do you gain, I think your question was, remind me of your question exactly. It was like, how do you gain insight into the customer? Yeah. How, how would you get insight from the customer on, on like where things are heading and where you should be taking your business? Because a customer is not going to tell you, oh, you could ditch all your hotels and just rent out other people's spare rooms. That's right. Because that's, that's right. it's not going to come from them. No. So how do you try and identify some of these needs that are something your business could transform to? Your question is partially self-answering <laughs> because the point is you focus on the needs, not the solution. If a customer comes to you and says, I want you to build a product like this, you should politely listen to them so that they don't feel disregarded, but then say, why do you want that product? <laughs> 
what is the problem you are trying to solve? Because that is the actual valuable insight from your customer. Not customer as product designer who can conceive of some product they think they want. Lots of times, there's lots of examples where companies built products the customers said they wanted. And I don't know, the new Coke debacle back from the 80s, right? Coke yeah. goes out, has everyone taste the Coke. Customers say, I want the new Coke. They put the new Coke on the market. Customers say, get rid of this thing. It's horrible. We don't want to go back to the old one. What the heck? So to your point, customers will often not guide you correctly if you ask them, what do you want in a product? But it's about understanding where are their current points of pain? Where is their current level of inconvenience? We talked before about the importance of convenience. What is it that's taking their time, their energy? What is their current emotional journey? If you're trying to look at the hotel industry, example you mentioned, if you look at the full journey of dealing with hotel-related stuff, from the point that you identify that maybe you want to go on a trip to shopping and finding a hotel and booking it and arriving and getting your room and all the things you do in your room and getting towels and ordering room service and whatever you may do to checking out and getting the bill, et cetera. So you get this whole journey of things that happen over the course of a hotel stay. Which parts are inconvenient? Which parts are frustrating? Where is there a delight in that process, joy, excitement, and all those wonderful emotions? We want to keep those. But where are there negative emotional experiences? Because those are the opportunities. If you want to create more value for your customer in the experience, try to heighten the positive emotions and start to remove the negative emotions. So I think it's not about asking your customer what's next, where is technology headed and all that, but it's about understanding if we could solve certain problems, if we could make it so no matter what time of day or night you go back to your hotel room, it's always clean. As soon as you order the room service, it arrives in your room within five minutes. The, there's, the hot water is always there. There's an unlimited supply of towels in your room. You never run out. Whatever the points of pain are, then that would probably be improved experience. Of course, the challenge then becomes, how the heck are we going to do that? How do we make sure that there's never, you never run out of towels? I don't know. But that's the creative process then. That's what product innovators need to do, not customers. What's- it just just made me think of uh, actually I've got an example which I think you've got some experience with because you, you work with Avis didn't you did you yeah. say Avis yeah we yeah did. so I, I used to work with Europe Car competitor to Avis and I, I suppose what we've seen in that space is you've got the traditional car rental right you have to go to a normally an airport or train station or something go to the one of the agency kind of store places they go take you to your car they do all the checks and everything. And then what we saw was a move to a move to things like Zipcar and a few other alternatives where it, you book it through the website or the app, but you don't have to go to a person. You just right. find the car and pick it up. And now, but there you've got still got the problem that the company owns the car. So you've still got that cost. Now, I think we've got, I think it's a company called Turo or True. Yeah, I think it's Turo, maybe in the UK, which I believe allows you to rent someone else's car now. So now you've got that convenience of, I've just got to go down the road and pick up this car, combined with the cost savings of all this company's got to do is put the car in front of you. It doesn't have to now own it or they might not even clean them or anything. I, I think they literally just, we're an app. All we're going to do is tell you where a car is that you can rent. So that, that kind of, that's an industry that has moved that through that transformation, but through different companies not through one company making that change. Of course, this is always the risk of any a company that fails to transform fast enough is that someone else will come along. AOL and MySpace could have been Facebook and Instagram, but they didn't transform rapidly enough. And now they're largely a shadow of their former selves. 
So I think that's always a risk. And yet there are other examples of companies that have driven forward to be the next generation of something. So I think that's most companies are at that pivot point. Are we going to are, are we going to just be in decline as the way we do business becomes less and less relevant for an digital world? That's an option. Or are we going to find the way to jump to what's next? What's the next way of delivering whatever the domain of value you serve, whether you're in tax preparation or you, you know, sell shoes or hotels or what plumbing, whatever your thing is as technology and changing customer behaviors make it possible to do it in ways that are more convenient, more personalized, and less expensive. Are you jumping on those things or not? And companies, that's the choice that companies have. Yeah. I think, did, uh, did Netflix ever, was Netflix ever in the physical space? Not maybe not well, stores, they, they, but with, they with started with, not with physical stores. Yeah, they started by delivering DVDs by mail. That yeah. was their original business. Because like, still very digital business in a way, because it was very reliant yeah. on there being an app that you could pick what you wanted and order. Yeah, because I don't remember having that here in the UK, but we had Love yeah. Film, which was basically the same thing. You would literally just, I think you prioritized, you pick a big list, you prioritize them, and right. they just send the next one that's available, and they got bought by Amazon. So yeah, that yeah, that's a good example of companies that saw this need to move away from that physical space and that convenience, and then have eventually... Obviously, it got to that point where Netflix is one of the biggest, probably the biggest streaming. Uh, I think so, yeah. And, and, and acquisition, service. by the way, is one strategy. If you're a legacy company that isn't, is trying to figure out how to get from where you are to that future, Walmart bought Jet.com, for example, which was one of the larger e commerce yeah. players and was one of the ways, part of how they got to where they are now. So there's nothing wrong with that as part of the strategy. Acquisitions and integrating a company with a very different culture can be challenging. It doesn't always work. But then again, trying to launch your own product doesn't always work either. So all of these strategies for transformation are fraught with risk. But that's certainly one valid one. Yeah. And you talked about like personalization and stuff and how you can have, now have a better experience online than you can in store. I, I don't think that's something we see a lot yet. I know you mentioned Netflix. Um, one study showed that 80% of all videos watched on Netflix are based on the recommendations that are placed on the home screen of someone's Netflix you know, subscription. So Netflix is driving the vast majority of consumption. And I think, I forget the numbers. Does Netflix represent something like 50% of all internet traffic or something crazy like that? It's, it's probably a huge amount now. But, uh, but so what I mean is uh, you don't see it a lot across, across businesses. I still think that the businesses that I see it doing it the best are the ones where either you go in store and speak to someone or you can pick up the phone or, or live chat or voice uh, video chat or whatever, but you still have that customer interaction because may maybe it's just because these are the sort of businesses where there needs to be that chat to really discover what the customer wants so that you can build this product offering for them. So maybe it's a little bit more bespoke. I think that um, you're right that there's, first of all, there's different types of creating a personal experience. And if I go to a jewelry store where I've been going for 25 years and buying gifts for my wife and they know me and they know my wife and they know what I've bought in the past and we have a personal relationship, clearly there's a power in that, that you don't get by logging into Amazon and using it. So, so the, there's different flavors of this. There's no question. But there was another study done and I don't remember the exact statistics, but it talked about Facebook, which is obviously a platform which is heavily based on personalization. And the study, and I'll be honest, I'm not really sure about the validity of the method that the study used, but just yeah. take it as, a, as an example. They said that in Facebook, as you like things, 
hit your thumbs up like button. Facebook's learning about what you like, what are the things mm-hmm. you liked, right? And from that, it's starting to learn about what kind of hobbies you might have, what your political leanings are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what they say is, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, after you've liked 20 things on Facebook, they know you better than most of your friends at work. And after you've liked 50 things on Facebook, they know you better than your immediate family. And after you've liked 100 things on Facebook, they know you better than your spouse. I I think I've heard something similar. Yeah. Because of your interactions with, with Facebook, they can, yeah, they know who you are almost better than yourself, probably at some point. And and needless to say, Google is different, but similarly highly targeted. When you search for something, it's taking many factors into consideration, certainly like your location and other things to give you results that are more targeted to what you want. So I think those are the companies that are generating the most growth, market capitalization, et cetera. Of course, you're absolutely right though. There are many great legacy retailers, for example, that are still mostly relying on human beings to provide whatever personalization they do. And these are companies that are under threat, I think. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think? I suppose you probably are answering this anyway, but the, the biggest challenges, or what's the biggest challenge in I suppose, trying to identify these changes or maybe some of the internal challenges in, in, in moving forward and, and making this change? Biggest challenge is resistance to change. I think that if you could pick any company that went out of business due to failure to transform and you could find, if you could rewind the clock and go back to when they were at their peak, you will find somebody in that organization screaming and yelling at a senior level that about the transformation that is necessary. Everyone famously knows the story of Kodak and how they invented the digital camera at Kodak. And they launched in the market the first digital camera, Kodak did, the film company. But because there was so much internal resistance to the idea of products that no longer required film, because Kodak was really at heart a chemical company, the chemicals Mm -hmm. of film, that was really, cameras were just a, a means to an end of selling film. And so the whole idea of cameras that didn't need film was so culturally against their grain that even though they launched these products, they didn't really market them. They didn't really push them. It wasn't a priority. And then, of course, other companies came in and picked up from there. And, and obviously, needless to say, film is a, has now become an obscure, rarely used product. And Kodak is a tiny sliver of their former self. This is a company that could have been the largest owner in that space, but, but didn't pick it up because of resistance to change. Not for lack of seeing the, when you say companies, of course, can't see anything. Only people can see. I worked at Blockbuster as a consultant when they were near their peak and Netflix was still mostly delivering DVDs by mail. And there were super smart people there who saw what was coming. They hired my company to build prototypes and to create visioning and to strategize. Where are we going to go? What's it going to look like when we're streaming to the home? But it's one thing to hire a consulting company and create a bunch of prototypes and test them with customers. It's another thing to actually commit to that business model in a world where all the executives that run the company come from places like JCPenney, you know, and Sears and whatever, and who are at heart retail store people and who really aren't excited about a future where you don't need to drive to the retail store to get your movie. And is there, how would you advise trying to get around that? Obviously it's a big job, but if you had to sum it up quite briefly, how can you target that? And how can you try and win those people over? I suppose. Yeah. I'll try to give you a quick answer. In my book, I talk about 10 different reasons that people resist change. And then I provide 12 different strategies to overcome 
resistance to change. So there's a, a variety, but I, I think that the most fundamental reason that people resist change is that they just don't think it'll be good for them individually, whatever is good for the company. And so you really have to understand, just like we study customers to understand how to create a better product for the customer, study your employees and understand, well, what is the point of resistance or multiple points of resistance? Sometimes it's that they're worried that they're in a new world where technology, where the technology changes, whatever else, that they won't be as important, that they won't have as big an empire, that their skills won't be as needed anymore because different skills are becoming important. Sometimes they just don't like the the tumult. Sometimes it's just, it's like remodeling your kitchen. It's going to be better in the end, but in the interim, it's such a hassle. Let's forget it. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Sometimes they just have a short-term mindset. Some executives are like, listen, I get my bonus based on the the, the financials at the end of this year. I'm probably going to be here for two more years. I want to maximize my bonus for the next two years and then I'm out of here. I don't want to start a whole thing that's going to require all kinds of investment and possibly be disruptive and affect our financial performance over the next two years just because if we don't do it, we'll be out of business in five years. That's not my, my goal is maximize my bonus in two years and retire to a yacht if you're a CEO of a four. And I don't mean to be like caricaturing it or saying that they don't care at all, but the bottom line is it's reasonable to expect that people are going to look to their own interests much above the company's interests. And so I think that's one. It's not the only reason. I think there's also just a psychological tendency that human beings have that probably comes from what was an evolutionary advantage in very early primitive times to just avoid change. If you've got something that works for you, if you're a caveman and you've got a cave that protects you from the elements and someone's like, let's trek all the way a hundred miles that way. Maybe there are better caves over there. You're like, no, I'm going to get killed by a saber tooth tiger on that route. I'm just going to yeah. stay where I am. Thank you very much. And now, and score. so those types of hesitancy to mess with what you perceive to be at least an acceptable level of success is that possibly for many people an ingrained personality nature that had survival benefit in a prior era. But of course, it's not useful today. In fact, it's counter beneficial when the world is changing that much, you can't take the mindset that says, let's work for the last 10 years, so we should just keep doing what we're doing. That's what Kodak tried to do. That's what Blockbuster yeah. tried to do. Or you say, we'll make little changes. Like I remember when I was at Blockbuster and we were pitching these big digital transformation projects, there were other people pitching retail store transformation. See, they got the word transformation in there too. Instead of digital transformation, retail store transformation. And I remember they had different display racks there was this whole idea. We're going we're gonna to show the videos differently. They're going to be angled differently. There's going to be different kind of signage in the store, different ways of finding the video. In other words, they were coming up with ways to improve it, but they were optimizations. They were based on the assumption that we're going to keep doing basically what we're doing, but we're going to find little fixes and improvements so we can all feel like we're headed somewhere new and better. And while there are times when that is the appropriate thing to do, you shouldn't transform and then every year completely transform your business model every single year. And that's crazy. You want it. There are, if you can avoid transformation, it's better to just keep doing what you're doing if it will work. But we live in a time of rapid change. And so if a company mm-hmm. is not transforming today, it's probably not a successful strategy. But during more stable times to just say, you know what, this seems to be working pretty well. Let's just keep doing what we're doing and make little incremental improvements is a perfectly sound strategy. It's just that in most industries today, it's not the time for that. Yeah. But I think you can be looking at both, can't you? Right. You can be doing those. Because I suppose in a lot of cases, those optimizations and tweaks are are small things that you can do on an ongoing basis. Keep testing, keep learning, keep improving. It's that transformation project, which runs alongside that, which in the two years it takes you to do the transformation project, 
you spend two years doing these automation optimizations to keep the business improving until you make that kind of big switch over and that big change. 100%. That's absolutely right. And in, in my book, I talk about the five steps of digital transformation. The uh, fourth step is optimize the present. So the first three are all about understand the customer, journey map, create the future, the journey mapping of what the future experience should be, and then using design thinking to build out all the different products, touch points, and interfaces that you need to create that ambitious future North Star vision. And while you do that, there's two things you do in parallel. And one of them, one of them is leadership. And I talk in my book about leadership, including overcoming organizational resistance. And the other is to optimize the present because you're absolutely right. Once you start doing that customer research, sometimes you find things and say, oh, wow, I don't have to transform anything to just make the instructions in my app clearer or to find yeah. the bug that makes it crash on iOS 11 and fix it or whatever. And so you absolutely need to always be optimizing what you have in the market while you also look for more transformational opportunities. It's just that when people do the optimization and call it transformation as a way of hiding from the transformation they really need to do, that can be quite dangerous. No, makes sense. Is there anything else you wanted to, to add to talk about? Oh, I'll go on all day. So. <laughs> yeah, cool. In that case, is there anyone in the, the kind of D2C world at the moment that you'd want to go for lunch with or, or go for a drink with? Ooh. Boy, oh boy. With all that's going on, it'd certainly be interesting to have a conversation with Mark Zuckerberg. He must have an interesting <laughs> life. I wonder how he copes with the stress. Yeah. Well, I think uh, there's so many interesting <laughs> companies doing interesting things. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I imagine there's a bit of stress. Yeah. But how much stress are you really under when, you're, when you've got billions of dollars and you're in a position like he's in? I think he's under a lot of stress, but I could be wrong. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah, he probably is. But I imagine it's a lot easier to cope with than, uh, than someone who's not got enough money to do whatever he wants with. But, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Cool. Awesome. This has been really interesting stuff. I think you, you made some really good, interesting points about yeah transformation. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, I'll have to sum it up afterwards, but <laughs> the Apple wallet one was the, and, and Starbucks, so the really interesting points you made right at the start about how your the, the transformation you make doesn't have to be directly related to a transformation of your existing product into a modern version. Because that's not what Apple's done and what Starbucks have done with those with the wallets. They are complementary products that have uh, that they've seen a, a need for in the market and then have seen how those fit into their existing ecosystems. So I think that's something to, to really think about as a business. You don't have to completely transform that business model, but is there something you can do that works alongside that to make the business so much better? Yeah. Starbucks, I'm sure, noticed that one of the things that was taking the time from their customers and from their employees was dealing with payment. It's one of the parts of buying anything. And so yeah. when you can make that more efficient, and by the way, part of their cost at Starbucks is credit card. I'm sure they're paying a lot of money in credit card processing fees and such. Now, if you can make those things both more economically efficient by reducing fees and more labor official, you are improving your core business, but you're doing it, like you say, through adding something that most people wouldn't imagine a quick serve restaurant, because that's basically what Starbucks is, that they you would go to create something like that. So I think that that's absolutely right. It, it creates all kinds of, of opportunities. And now who knows where those things will go? All of a sudden, something that initially was only a small auxiliary part of your business can wind up growing. Look at Apple, right? They were a computer company, but telephony and mobile applications and all that software is now the, 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 as an app platform for, I mean, their whole business, their original business is dwarfed 
by the new businesses that they have. Yeah. They still have it. Still the new Mac laptop just came out. They're still doing that in the relative big picture of Apple. That's a tiny portion. And you know, I did a live cast a while back about 7-Eleven. Do you have 7-Eleven there by you? Brand 7-Eleven? But I'm familiar with it. I imagine a lot of English people are. I, I don't, if we do, there's probably one right, right. somewhere in the UK. They're all over the US, of course, and they're convenience stores. And you get, you know, coffee in the morning or some milk at midnight. They're open. Many of them are open 24 hours a day. And what a lot of people don't know, and I didn't know until I learned it and then researched it and did a live cast on it, was that they started over a hundred years ago. And their original business was that they were an ice delivery company. Used to be that people didn't have refrigerators that plugged into the wall. The way they kept food cold was they had a giant block of ice in the lower compartment of an ice box and the upper compartment was kept cool, almost like uh, you go on a picnic now and you take an ice chest and you put your stuff. That was what people had in their homes. And so there was a need for these places called ice docks, which would, I don't know where they'd get the ice from. They'd make the ice. I'm not quite sure, but then they would either, people would either pick up blocks of ice, they would do it. And that was their business. And then they, the GE, General Electric, came out with the first electric refrigerator. In the early days, very few people had one. It was a new idea. And the same year, that company, which was called the Southland Ice Company, decided to expand their business in a small way. They said, you know, we have all this ice in our warehouse. We have cold, just waiting for people to come get. We could store things like milk, cheese, eggs, things that need to be kept cold. We have the free cold storage. That way, people come, they could not just get ice, but they could get some of these other things, these convenient items that a lot of people want to pick up at the last minute. They don't want to have to go all the way to the grocery store. And that was the beginning of the idea of the convenience store. And of course, at a certain point, the whole idea of delivering ice to people, people still buy ice if they're having a party or something. Yeah. 7-Eleven still sells ice, but at what percentage of their revenue is ice? It's yeah, probably exactly. almost nothing. The new business takes becomes bigger. The old business is in decline. And now, of course, I don't know how many of the companies that were running ice docks back in 1900 have become multi-billion dollar global companies. I'm guessing just the one. Thousands probably, of others. Yeah probably never figured out how to make that leap. So that's the opportunity that companies have today. And the risk and the challenge and the threat they have today is to figure out, are they going to leap to the next thing? I'm sure most of those ice stacks just went out of business. And But the Southland Ice Company didn't. They became a company that today's worth, I forget, $20 billion or more or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, I think that's a, a great point to end it on. So thank you so much, Howard. Um, if anyone wants to get in touch or, or find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about my book, uh, you can go to the website for the book, which is winningdigitalcustomers.com. You can download the first chapter for free, and you can also find links to all the places that you would expect where you can buy the book, like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, all those kinds of places. And if you want to learn more about my consulting company, which is called From Digital, you can go to from.digital or find me on LinkedIn, where I do a lot of live casting and post a lot of other content and thought leadership. You can just find me at Tierski at my last name. Awesome. I'll, I'll make sure they, uh, all those links are in the, uh, the show notes. Right on. All right. Cool. cool. Thanks, Howard. Oh, thanks so much. Great, great to talk Cheers. to you all. Thinking outside the box is one of the biggest opportunities for growth for any business. You've got businesses like Airbnb and Netflix, which took existing business models and turned them on their heads. But then you've got things like Apple Pay and the Starbucks wallet, two products that don't seem like they belong to companies that produce smartphones and coffee. These companies identified frictions in their customers' lives and produced solutions to them. I was just thinking the other day, I don't remember the last time I actually took my credit card out of my wallet to pay for something because I almost always just tap my phone. Customers who load cash into their Starbucks wallet can place their order more easily. And because the credit is there, they're also more likely to do it as well. 
You don't have to be a mega-sized business to do this, though. You just need the right people in place who have the freedom to think to innovate. Look at Vistaprint, for example. Yeah, okay, decent-sized business, a billion and a half in revenue, I think. But alongside their printing business, they also do design and, and website services. A small printing business could offer these as well. Lots of development agencies, for example, provide hosting as well because it takes away that friction from the client. If you'd like to hear more from Howard, you can find him on LinkedIn or head over to winningdigitalcustomers.com. Any other podcast questions, feedback or guest requests, please send them over to will at customersuclick.com or tweet me at Will Lawrenson. Next up, I've got Asad Hamir with me and he's going to explain how they've achieved explosive growth with their tech accessories business, Nolly. But until then, keep those customers clicking.